a disease of carbohydrate intolerance, right. but you pile in, not only pile in carbohydrate, but you mix fat and carbohydrate together, which is even more straining on the system. Right. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. We're supported by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, which advocates a simple CT scan to reveal your CAC score. So know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack. Everything you need to know will be right here. We're here in University of Houston, Clear Lake, and I've caught up with Jake Kushner, Dr. Jake Kushner. Great to see you again. Nice to see you, Ivor. Excellent. Excellent. And we were going to talk a little bit about why we eat the macronutrient ratios that we do eat and things around that whole, whole scenario. Yeah, so I've been obsessed on this question because if you go to a nutritionist and they, you ask them, hey, I have diabetes, what should, what should I eat? They'll often give you these very precise macronutrient ratios and they'll say, ah, so this comes from this thing that I learned back when I was in nutritionist school and they'll say, uh, there's a document, it's called the Institute of Medicine. It's the acceptable macronutrient distribution ratio. And they define the macronutrients quite precisely. And so the nutritionists around the world will tell you that the carbohydrates should be between 45 and 65%, and the protein and the fat are roughly equal of the rest. And I heard this over and over again as a physician, as a pediatric endocrinologist, when we were working with uh, children who were newly diagnosed with diabetes. And families often said to me they were surprised at how many carbohydrates they were being told to eat. In many cases, children who were diagnosed with diabetes were being told to eat more carbohydrates than they had been previously. So I got curious about this and I went to the source document, which is published by then by the Institute of Medicine, now renamed the National Academy of Medicine. It's the acceptable macronutrient distribution ratio. And what I discovered was there was an argument in between these two different ideas. One was if you eat too many carbohydrates, well then you're gonna have lots of triglycerides and you're gonna have a lot of small atherogenic LDL particles and so that might be bad, so don't eat all carbs, so they said. And then they said, well, uh, but if you eat too much fat, what's gonna happen is you're gonna gain weight, just like the rodents gain weight when they go on a high fat diet. So-called high fat diet. So-called high fat diet, actually high fat and carbohydrates, but that's a whole nother story. Mm. And, so, and so they said, if you eat too much fat, you'll gain weight because it's calorically dense. And as a result, you'll end up uh, consuming a lot of saturated fat and then therefore you'll be in trouble with a risk of cardiovascular disease. And so the, these experts in the field back in 2002 published these guidelines and the guidelines say you should choose a happy medium in between the two. So the numbers that we're forced to, to eat according to the nutrition are actually a precise compromise in between these two extremes. Which is hugely <coughs> ironic because you could argue with ultra low fat, high carb, you can achieve insulin sensitivity, and a non-diabetic or someone, yeah, sure. like a vegan diet or whatever. Yeah, eat cardboard. And, <laughs> yeah, and with a, a low carb, very high fat diet, you can achieve an insulin sensitivity in a different way. But right in the middle with 50-50 yeah. is not ideal. And foods in nature rarely are 50-50. They're usually fatty foods or the opposite. So I was astounded by this because I wondered why were we putting our patients with newly diagnosed diabetes on so many carbohydrates? And when I asked the, you know, the, the five why questions, I, I discovered that it actually didn't matter. And 
If you read the source document and you read what the experts are saying, they're actually implying that there's much more metabolic flexibility in our bodies than we give our, ourselves credit for. So it's this 600-page source document, and it's amazing. It's filled with lots of subtlety and really smart people. But the problem is, at the end, they have lookup tables. And so no one reads it. They just go to the lookup tables. They're like, I don't have time to read 600 pages. Just tell me what it says. And so those lookup tables were adopted by people who wrote all of the major textbooks in universities. So when people go to learn nutrition, they end up being taught by these textbooks which are written by people who haven't read the major source document, they just read the lookup tables. And so these myths are propagated throughout our population. And again, for the, for the group of people that I've been most interested in as a physician, people with type 1 diabetes, all those carbohydrates are just incredibly difficult to deal with. And essentially, I suppose, diabetes can be described, I think Professor Feynman said, it's a disease of carbohydrate intolerance in many right. ways. It defines it. And type 1, because of a lack of insulin, you're obviously highly intolerant. And type 2, similar with insulin resistance. So a disease of carbohydrate intolerance, <laughs> right. but you pile in, not only pile in carbohydrate, but you mix fat and carbohydrate together, which is even more straining on the system. Right. And... I guess the other problem I've found with type 1 diabetes is that we believe that you can have a very precise insulin to carbohydrate ratio. So as physicians, we think that if you only followed my instructions and you carried out a precise amount of insulin with a precise timing right before the meal, and you consume a precise amount of carbohydrates, that you'd have glycemic perfection and you'd minimize your risk of, uh, of diabetes complications. But it just doesn't work like that. What I found in working with people with type 1, being around people with type 1, becoming friends with them, is that uh, on the standard protocols and the standard American diet, they struggle to, to achieve anywhere no, uh, near glycemic per, uh, perfection. Yeah, it, it's quite shocking to see some of these glucose curves, particularly in young type 1 diabetics. Yeah. And I know Bernstein, Dr. Bernstein, type 1 guy, he called it the law of small numbers, that if you keep the carb inputs really small, you can much easier achieve a steady control level with your insulin. So I've seen the extremes of this actually. So one time when I was at diabetes camp, I saw teenagers having a car beating contest. And so they were, you know, teenage boys doing what teenage boys can do, act foolishly. And, I, and there was a boy who ate 250 grams of carbohydrates. So imagine the dose of insulin that's required. Imagine the glycemic response afterwards. He has no idea after those 250 grams of carbohydrates whether his blood sugar is going to be 50 or 500 milligrams per deciliter. And it's also true of many standard American diets. And part of the problem is that it's not just so it's difficult to count the carbs, you don't ever actually know. But there's also the effect of fat and protein on the absorption of carbohydrates. And so that you can't really do the calculus as we imagine it. These macronutrients are not in isolation, they're together as food. And their glycemic absorption is, quite, is, is very different. So it's quite challenging. And it'll vary based on individual dynamics oh, yes. of the individuals. It'll vary based on whether they've exercised or even whether they had good sleep. It'll just, right. it is myriad factors. Right, sleep, stress, mm. all of that. And so the, 
I guess if this were merely an academic exercise, that would be okay. But as it turns out, the people with type 1 diabetes on average around the world have very high rates of cardiovascular disease. They're at risk for a foreshortened uh, lifespan. Uh, there was a recent paper that was published in The Lancet describing how uh, people who were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes before the age of 10 had on average an expected lifespan reduction of 17 years. I had heard figures of that level 15 to 20 years, which is, right. which is really shocking because they're the, they're the years of kind of when you have all your experience in life, right. you know, you might be able to retire, you have grandchildren. I mean, these are hugely golden years and they're, they're all gone and you don't need to even lo lose a month if you actually eat the right way. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, there are people with type 1 diabetes who have lived into their 90s but they've learned these tricks and the problem is they're rare and uh, the global community of type 1 is not that well connected. So people live in isolation. Uh, I, I find that quite often people with type 1 diabetes won't know that there are other people with type 1 diabetes even in their community and so they're not able to talk and learn. And um, Social media has made a big difference. There, again, you mentioned Dr. Richard Bernstein and his amazing book, The Bernstein Diabetes Solution, but there's also this Facebook group that's devoted to his followers called Type 1 Grit. That is an amazing group. I will just interject there briefly, Jake. So yeah, Type 1 Grit. All one word. All one word, Type O-N-E-G-R-I-T. And that's R.D. Dykeman, I think, yes, helps from that. that's right. It's amazing. I, I told a group of Irish doctors recently, you've no idea, all these people are going on with their children's blood glucose all over the place. Right. And then they, they take on the right approach with low carb and the higher protein. And they're just running blood glucose, like almost like an, an ordinary person. Yeah, it's remarkable. They're able to get these spectacular results. And these are families with growing children or adults who have type one. And the kids are growing and they're healthy. Thriving. And they're living and they're thriving and they're living life. And compare and contrast that to somebody who's on a standard American diet who has type 1 diabetes, who's living a glycemic roller coaster with frightening excursions. Sometimes people will have low blood sugars in the middle of the night that will cause them to have seizures. People get into car accidents. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it's, it's a life of all those terrifying experiences and limitations and then probably 15 or years knocked off the end of it. So if you put it together, it's, it's actually shocking. But what really makes it shocking is, with relatively simple changes, you can negate all of it. Now that's, that stuns me that the diabetes associations do not have a simple pamphlet telling you all you need to do is X, Y, Z, W, and you'll be fine but they don't, they so don't. why? Well, they've started to open, in the, in the guidelines, they're open to the possibility of low carb, but they won't embrace it. And I think, you know, part of the problem is low carb nutrition is, is complicated, it's different, and it requires a whole leap of faith in terms of how you think about food. And the, these traditional systems move at a glacial pace. So part of the problems that we face in the low carb community is many of the people who are in this community are people who embrace novelty and change. And, and they're highly motivated, really serious people, and they're exploring for new options. Those people almost by definition are gonna be on the lead of any, any real major cultural movement. But in these big institutions with a lot of bureaucracy and career uh, bureaucrats, it's a whole different story. It's let's move slowly, let's figure out what happens. Despite the fact that the way that they are, are practicing medicine and nutrition 
itself was never proven with a randomized controlled clinical trial. Exactly. They're going to hold a low-carb, high-fat, or low-carb, high-protein nutrition in type 1 diabetes to the standard of a randomized clinical trial. Just a quick break to remind you that this podcast is only possible due to funding from David Bobbitt and the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity. For middle-aged people, it is imperative to find out your heart attack risk by getting a CT scan of the heart and your CAC score. The new IHDA.ie website has all the scan resources. Please support us by visiting and sharing widely. Knowing your score, you can take action to stop the disease process and save your own life. It can even be as simple as removing sugar, refined carbs and seed oils, i.e. processed food, from your diet. And now we return to the conversation. Yeah, because uh, this is one of the areas, it's the same with coronary calcium scanning, that the, uh, the Framingham risk score and the stress tests, none of them had randomized controlled trials. And yet for coronary calcium now, because they rejected it for years, they don't really like it for many economic reasons. So now they, some of them demand an RCT, which is absurd. It's kind of very analogous. Now, these organizations as well, it's not just not wanting to move too fast. I guess if low carb, higher healthy fats becomes a mega solution, which yes. it looks like. Yeah, I agree. It, it does make you feel very bad about what you've been doing for 30 or 40 years. That's right. There's, a, there's some defensiveness. It's hard. And I, I can tell you at a personal level as a physician, I do worry about the times when I told people to eat high carb, low fat solutions. I was part of the problem before I became part of the solution. I'm willing to come clean about that. But I, I think it's, I would like to see the field change. Now there is some hope and part of the reason is young people are embracing these kinds of things. And there are physicians who want to make a difference, who are really compassionate, who want to support their patients, who are looking around. And so part of the beauty of the social media and low carb is it is going from the outside into the medical establishment. And so there are assistant professors, there are young people who are looking to make a name for themselves. And you know, I, one of the reasons I give a lot of these talks on low carb and type one is I'm trying to speak to the young people who were in the establishment to make them think, hey, maybe I could carry out an experiment and test the impact of low carb in my population as it relates to growth or mental health or, or overall diabetes control, or maybe you're, you're a cardiologist and you want to think about, about, about cardiac markers. And my hope is that these young people who are ambitious, who are thinking about their careers, will gravitate towards these new hypotheses as a way to sort of advance their career. Excellent, yeah. Nothing like incentive to drive new ideas forward, for yeah. sure. And it just reminds me there, you mentioned about cardiovascular disease being huge in type 1 and, of course, type 2. Yeah. Um, and yet we have Bernstein himself, I believe, got a calcium score of zero in his 80s. He's 85. 85. I, I believe <laughs> in the last few years he got a zero. Now, for any, no, any human to get a zero in the 80s yeah. is extremely rare. But for a type 1 diabetic of a duration 60 plus years to get a zero calcium, isn't that stunning? Well, let's also talk about him. I mean, so he's been able to reverse major diabetes complications and he had diabetic neuropathy. He had early, early signs of gastroparesis, which is diabetic neuropathy of the enteric uh, neurons that, 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 that innervate the stomach. So he, and he had signs of retinopathy, and, the, and, that's, and that's gone away. And there are many people who have described reversal 
of, of early diabetes complications with low-carb, high-fat. And that's been described for both type 1 and type 2. Now, obviously, if you've had diabetic uh, retinopathy and you've lost major portions of your retina, it can't grow back. But there are early vascular changes in the eye that might be reversible with, with normal blood sugars. And that's wonderful. I also have heard um, anecdotes around diabetic nephropathy, kidney disease. So diabetes is the most common cause of end-stage renal disease. And many of those people who end up on, di on dialysis, if they don't get a, a kidney transplant, are at very high risk for death within five years. So there are very few people who are on dialysis for, for a decade or more. And, and the reason is the cardiovascular fluids are all changed and they have this so-called water hammer effect. So the heart ends up pumping against this massive, completely changed system and they're at high risk for heart failure. Of course, and I think I remember just that you mentioned that, Jake, uh, chronic kidney disease, CKD. I know someone quite close to me who was stage three yeah. and I reached out and I think it was Dr. Ken Berry was saying he's seen four go to three and three go to two with a well-formulated keto diet, but, right. but not complete reversal, but a three that would have inevitably become a four and, and right. beyond goes to two and sits there nicely. Many it's amazing. Many healthy uh, young adults with type 1 diabetes who are on standard American diets will have uh, so-called microalbuminuria. So they have early signs of leaky kidneys where the albumin that's present in the serum is leaking into their urine. And that is a harbinger of diabetic uh, kidney disease. And uh, we know this and we also know that you're supposed to treat that with an ACE inhibitor with a blood pressure medicine. So that has emerged as standard of care, but I wonder whether a ketogenic diet would be far better. Because when, when you go on an, on an ACE inhibitor and you have uh, early signs of diabetic uh, kidney disease, we know that it's only a matter of time before you're gonna progress down the road. But if, if we could have a proper RCT, where randomized control clinical trial, where we apply ketogenic or low-carb, high-protein nutrition with appropriate support, I'd love to know whether adults you know, could reverse diabetic nephropathy for yeah. type 1 or type 2. That would be fascinating. And I only know of one actual human trial with very low carb for kidney issues. And it was Dr. Jose in Brazil who spoke in London a couple of years ago. I met him and he talked on this. So I might be able to dig that out. It, it just shows that the creatinine and the various, the various numbers got much better with a low carb, high protein diet, which flies in the face of protein being a challenge for the kidneys, you know? Right. And, and by the way, you don't have to consume a lot of protein if you're on low carb, high fat. And one of the tricks I find uh, for people who, who are interested in low carb uh, type one is that they really should find ways to eat more fat. And the reason is um, if you have type one, you're gonna need to use regular insulin to cover the protein or, long, or extended pump boluses. And one challenge we see over and over again with people with type one is they hear, okay, I heard about that low carb thing. You know, uh, that crazy Dr. Kushner, he had this cool thing, I'm gonna try it, so I'm gonna have a meal and I'm not gonna eat any carbs. So I'm gonna have a big ribeye steak and some green vegetables, and then I won't take any insulin. Okay, so if you do that, what happens? All that protein turns to glucose, and the glucose drive it goes up and up and up, and sometimes people are actually much more hyperglycemic than they would have expected for a meal that contains no carbohydrates. 
Okay, so a big part of the Bernstein method is using regular insulin or extended boluses from your pump or a couple of do uh, doses of insulin to cover the protein. And the ratio is about 0.6. So what do I mean by that? So if you consume a 50 grams of protein and you have type 1, you should view it as 30 grams of, of effective carbohydrate. Take the 50 and multiply it by 0.6 to get 30. And imagine that it's not going to be immediately absorbed, but absorbed over some extended period of time, four to six hours. So now you have to find a little dose of insulin to give at the start of the meal, and maybe another one at the end of the meal. Or if you have a fancy pump that can give a square wave bolus, you could, you could do that. Or you could use this uh, older form of insulin called human regular insulin. But again, the Bernstein method, the Bernstein book describes this in great detail, and covering protein is a big deal. Now, another option that I found that a lot of people with type 1 do is they'll actually simply start to eat more fat. And so, like I met this guy, I, was, I, I went to Low Carb Down Under, and I, I gave a talk, I was in Melbourne, and I met this young man who had type 1 diabetes, and he said, you know, I discovered that when I eat, when I eat more fat, I'm just less hungry, and I don't need much insulin. I said, cool, so what do you do? I said, do you eat a lot of nuts? He goes, no. He goes, this sounds gross. He goes, he goes, I consume eight ounces of olive oil every morning. <laughs> wow. Now that would be, I would find that very difficult to drizzle it on a salad, yes. Yeah, no, he chugs it. He chugs it, wow. Like some, <laughs> that's good. But, I mean, I mean, but how clever, right? Yeah, there's practically, if it's taken a tooth cell on its own with no carb or protein, right. then there'll be zero <laughs> insulin response, but he's fueled himself for, right. for the day. With mufas, with monounsaturated yeah, uh, yeah. fatty acids. Healthy, a healthy fat, uh, wow. And now, <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Very, that is amazing. Now, the only thing is, a slight little thing is, if you take in a large amount of fats that's just olive oil and all, right. it can have relatively few nutrients. So you're not getting a lot of nutrients yeah, exactly. with the calories. But if your other food is yeah, highly sure. nutrient-dense exactly. that day, right. you're cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I, mm. I do this at home myself, so I don't actually chug olive oil. I'm, I'm buying macadamia nuts oh. in bulk. I buy uh, these, these uh, two-kilogram vacuum-sealed uh, containers from Hawaii. And I, I, I get, you know, eight kilograms at a time and we keep them in the fridge and, and I, I will eat them in a bowl with a spoon. Wow. <laughs> and they are very tasty, especially if you salt them. Yeah, and these They're are unsalted. Unsalted, but if you, yeah. I salt them or get salted yeah. ones, they are quite delicious. They've got a creamy texture. Yeah, exactly. And they're basically, I used to call them solid olive oil because they are massively monounsaturated, I yeah, think. Yeah, they're 95%, 90 to 95% fat by calories. It's basically mm. fat and a little yeah. bit of insoluble yeah. ash. And you know what, some nutrients in there, I'm sure, are relative to the olive oil, I'm guessing. Right, right. Bits and, and pieces, maybe and some magnesium. And, and some fiber, so it gets your yeah. GI tract working in the morning. So it's, it's all good, yeah. as they say. Would yeah. you don't eat 100% macadamias only all the time? No, I don't. <laughs> no. Now, there was a guy, we were just talking earlier, I think it was Dr. Christian Assad. Yes. And he's talking about the guy who's 20 or 30 years eating 25 eggs a day, approximately. <laughs> Nothing else. Yeah. He had some mental issue about this. It was a fixation. And his cholesterol profiles were beautiful, and he was in stunning health. 
No, you know? no. We live in Texas, so I'm into, you know, we um, barbecue and uh, I'm into, beef, we make beef, beef. ribeyes and we, um, yeah, you know, mm, beautiful okay. cheeses and lots of other things like mm. this. Yeah, I have nice. a sous vide machine. We sous vide steaks. Oh, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, I know Mike Eads actually has sous vide brand out. That's right. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. He got it all optimized to be the best in the world and all yeah. that. So get one of those. Um, so any other key points? I know we're tight in time now. You have to get back down south, but... Uh, well, I guess the most important thing I would say is that uh, if, you, if you have type 1 and you're interested in low carb or you think you know someone who's interested, who, who has type 1, uh, and by the way, all, many of these tips and tricks apply to diabetes in general, but what I would say is find someone else to share in your journey because all of this is not easy and doing it alone is difficult and building a community either online or in person makes an enormous difference because living with chronic illness or facing your own mortality or facing a major life change is not easy and so being part of a community I think really makes a big difference it's made a big difference for me I'm sure it has for you as well oh it's hugely motivational and I mean as you probably know I'm pretty out there and I have a lot of arguments with a lot of people for the best reasons uh, but there's a lot of pressure back on me and having this huge community of doctors professors researchers professionals and of course lay people You've got this whole family, and it keeps you motivated to keep going and get That's the right. messages out. Yeah, no, yeah, agree no, totally. Because because I think collectively we're all making a big difference on behalf of of our society, and I, and and my hope is that we'll we will be able to spread this message to more and more populations, and it will go. There will be you know low yeah. carb events all over Brazil, and that would be great. You know, all be. over the world. Well, that's, that's a great way to finish it up, uh, Jake, and uh, delightful here talking to you. Great advice for people. And just the last thing to people out there, ihda.ie, our charity website that supports this podcast. Please help get it out there. Share buttons on the homepage. And uh, yeah, just as Jake says, we got to get the message out. And without your help, we can't do it. Keep so, up the great work. Either. Thanks a lot, Jake. Thank great so stuff. Much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen, a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie on the far right, and myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, on the left. Otherwise, please do subscribe to the audio podcast. Thanks.